I've got something here that's not going to mean much to most of you. How's that? That's how I'm going to start my sermon. But four weeks ago today, the world of baseball lost a pioneer. His name was Ken Revisa. He wrote a book called Heads Up Baseball, which means a lot to me because he was a pioneer of what's called the mental game, which helps baseball players gain control of their nerves when they're facing a 96-mile-an-hour fastball so that they can succeed maybe three out of ten times. Now, that might not seem like much, but some of you who are familiar with baseball know that it was a very, very, very long time. For a very long time, the Chicago Cubs never won the World Series. But they credit Ken Revisa with helping them in that mental aspect of baseball to win the World Series. Well, he passed away four weeks ago. And I just uh, wanted to drop that on you this morning. Because the thing that most of us, most of us will never play baseball, most of us will never need what he did. And for most of us, it probably seems rather trivial. The reality is, though, that nobody really helps us with the mental game of being a Christian. Nobody really helps us under pressure be able to gain perspective so that we can live like we ought to live. I mean, where does that help come from? This morning, uh, I have found a source. It's Psalm 42. I want to invite you to turn there to help you and to help me think like a Christian. So that when we are discouraged, we know how to talk to ourselves. That's the thing. I'm going to guess that most of you, when you talk to yourself, you don't say the best of things. It's just a guess. I've talked to enough of you to know. I've talked to myself a lot, and I know we don't, you don't say the right kinds of things to yourself. That was what Ken Revisit tried to address in baseball. That's what I'm going to try and address, address this morning. However, for most of us, when it comes to being and remaining Christians, the stakes are much, much, much more high than they are in baseball. Because, I mean, uh, you go up to the plate, you strike out, you sit down, the world does not end, right? But, if you face adversity, maybe you have a difficult marriage, maybe you lose your job, maybe you don't know where the next mortgage payment is going to come from, maybe you've got a child who's rebellious. Stakes seem a lot higher, don't they? And the temptation then really is to run. To say, this is not working for me. That's when you need to talk to yourself most clearly and most effectively. And so we're going to see how to talk, we're going to see how we should talk to ourselves in Psalm 42. But before we do, I just, I want to set the stage a little bit. This is the first Psalm that's attributed to somebody besides David. It's the opening of the second book of Psalms. 
and it's attributed to the sons of Korah. To the choir master, it's intended to be sung. It's a mass skill, which simply means to teach prudence or to help people be wise and understand the way the world works. So this is a song of instruction from the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah are the authors of this psalm. may not mean anything to you. probably doesn't mean any more than Ken Revisa does to you. The sons of Korah, though, uh, have somewhat of a prominent place in the Bible, and it's not a good place. When... Um, after the Passover and Moses led the children of Israel into the wilderness, they were wandering around this barren desert for years. And several of the people of Israel decided, I'm tired of wandering around the wilderness. Dathan, Abiram, and Korah led a rebellion. They led a rebellion against Moses. Probably not any news. God didn't want them to lead a rebellion against Moses. God was not happy with them. So much so that the earth opened up and they fell in. Closed up. Finished. Then interestingly, in Numbers chapter 26, it makes this little footnote. said, because all of the all the whole family of Dathan and Abiram, they went down with them. But then there's this little footnote that says, the sons of Korah did not die. Now that's pretty interesting, because that's the first mention of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were in charge of temple music. David put them in charge. They were... Uh, Korah himself was the grandson, uh, great-grandson of uh, Aaron, who was the first high priest. It was a priestly duty to lead worship in the temple. And um, David designated uh, the sons of Korah as the, the, the people who would lead the worship. So here you have this mix, right? They have this great opportunity to lead worship before Yahweh, their God. And they cannot shed their history. It's interesting. I don't know if this was written by committee. It doesn't really even matter. Because it doesn't name the committee. It simply labels them with the shame of their ancestor. Which tells me right out the gate, before we even get started, that whatever's going on in this psalm gives me pause to say that all of us have a history. All of us have some sort of background and baggage and pain that we're having a hard time getting rid of. And I think certainly that's true for the sons of Korah. But I want to suggest to you that there's hope even when that's the case. Even when you feel like you can't shed your past or what you have from your parents or grandparents or your surroundings or anything else, if you can't get rid of that, there's still 
hope. So that's the first thing. This is the first psalm addressed uh, that somebody besides David had written. And then the other unique thing here is that there is a refrain. We haven't really seen very many psalms with refrains or a chorus. Something that as they sing, they would sing over and over and over. And this refrain comes three times. We've already prayed about it. We've already sung it here today. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Now, you probably are noticing the typo that's up here already. It says Psalm 43. I'm going to treat Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together. I believe that they were probably written as one psalm and pulled apart later in the editorial process of your Bibles. But were written as one, and you'll see why. It's going to be... uh, you know, completely obvious. But, all, but twice in Psalm 42 and once in Psalm 43, there is this refrain that reminds us to put our hope in God. This refrain reminds us how we are to talk to ourselves when we are cast down. This is the mental game of being Christian. And so that's, that's sort of the, the structure. It's, there's three stanzas. Each ends with the refrain. And let's, uh, let's begin reading Psalm 42. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This first stanza starts off with what may be for some of you A favorite verse. A life verse, maybe. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for You, O God. There is this desire for uh, God, for who who God is. In fact, that's what the next verse says. My soul thirsts for You, O God. The living God. And it starts out, It starts out with an image of a dehydrated animal having run from a predator of some kind across the desert and looking for water. Desiring, breathing heavily from the chase, looking for somewhere to slake its thirst. And it doesn't find it. 
It knows that satisfaction and happiness are at the stream if only they could find the stream. And there is just this deep, burning sensation down inside that says, when will I find rest? In other words, it isn't, it isn't a happy thought, right? As a deer pants for the water. It's a desperate thought. It's a broken-hearted cry from the psalmist that says, I know where the answers are, but I can't find them anyway. I know what to look for, but I'm completely adrift. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And then one of the, the salient things about this text are the questions. I want you to read this and I want you to pay attention as you read this to the questions. When shall I come and appear before my God? He's asking, Oh God, when will I find that drink? I mean, in some respect, it says though He knows the answer that Jesus gives the woman at the well, um, the Samaritan woman at the well, when He says, if you only knew who it was you're talking to, you would ask Him to drink because the person who drinks from this well, Jesus said, gets thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the living water that I provide will never thirst again. Oh, God, when will I find that living water? When will I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? I mean, nobody... Nobody who's overcome with happiness writes a sentence like, my tears have been my food day and night. I'm just going to say, they understand, don't they? What it's like to have an aching in your heart that doesn't go away. Where you wake up and it's the first thought on your mind and you go to bed and it's the thing that keeps you awake. And there is no easy way through. There's no easy way through. And there are people in the gallery, maybe enemies, who are asking the question that is so heavy on his soul at the time, where is your God? See, this is, this is the question, isn't it? When you're suffering, it's one thing to be suffering. It's one thing to have pain. It's another thing altogether to realize that you've been told all your life that God loves you. And He's nowhere to be seen. And you pray and He's quiet. That's, that's a whole different level of distress. To say, where is your God? And see, not just that. Not just does he know where to look and can't find it. Not just uh, are his tears his um, uh, food all day long and his enemies reminding him that, you know, where's your God? Make, mocking him, taunting him. He also remembers. 
He also remembers what it was like when he was close to God. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. And this king, or as a giving voice to the king, he said, I would lead the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. I remember a happier day. Oh God, please bring that happy day again. Multitude keeping festival. Sometimes memories serve to anchor us when we would be adrift. Other times memories simply haunt us that right now what we thought was real doesn't seem as real. What we thought was good doesn't seem as good. And so here we have a case where the psalmist Expects good, but experiences bad. He knows, he knows the right answer, and he feels like he's living the wrong answer. And in fact, he has no clue what the answer even is at the moment. And that's the way that he describes life. And some of you are there right now. Some of you have been there in the recent past. And many of you are going to be there. That's why we talk about this. That's why we don't just skip and pick our favorites. Because you need to know what to do when tears are your food day and night. And you're asking the question, where is my God? So we hit... The refrain here. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Just going to say, the first part of the refrain, and the reason it's a refrain is so that it gets drilled deep into your heart so that when you need it, you have it. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? You can question your doubts. You can call into question your disbelief. When your circumstances are shouting one thing, you can question the truth that those circumstances are telling you. That is the first strategy for talking to yourself. Is call into question what is untrue, and what your circumstances would try and convince you of. Why? Why are you downcast? Why is this a problem? The second thing that he does then is he commands his soul. Hope in God. For I again shall praise Him my salvation and my God. This is much easier said than done. Because we live in a world where this sounds inauthentic. 
It's inauthentic to feel one way and to believe another. It's inauthentic, we would be told, to, to really have in, inside this certainty or the, or the feeling of being abandoned by God. And if I feel that way, then it must be true. Or any other feeling for that matter. We live in a world that says your feelings define your reality. What you have here is him saying, no. My feelings do not define my reality. What defines my reality is God Himself. So, soul, put your hope in God. Tell yourself what you ought to do. Speak to your own heart and don't let your heart command your actions. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation and my God. Second stanza. Very similar to the first. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waters. All the breakers in your ways have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him my salvation, and my God. Well, here in the second stanza, we have more of the same. My soul is cast down. It's just the fact of the matter. And see, the interesting thing here is, try as I might, I can't pull it out. You see, it is, it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing to think that the best you have is positive thinking at a time like this. My soul is cast down within me. I just have to admit it that I can't solve this myself. Therefore, I remember you. Now, this, is, this adds to the, the pathetic sense of this psalm. Because before he remembered this festal procession going into the temple, and it wasn't just that, oh, I love religion. It was, no, the temple is a place where God meets man, and I want God because I know He's going to satisfy my heart. And here we, he says, from the land of the Jordan, miles, from Jerusalem, from Hermon and from Mount Mizar, in a distant part of the country, he has he feels like he has no access to God who would satisfy his heart. And so in a distance, at a distance he remembers God. 
And then he says, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfall. Now, I'm just going to say, one of the things that I want to encourage you to be careful of is, you know, there have been a couple of these already in this psalm, right? As a deer pants for the water, this happy thought of this beautiful deer drinking at this beautiful, you know, Oregon mountain stream. That's not the picture. And here, deep calls to deep. Some would say, oh, this is like the, you know, my best friends, they're so deep and I'm so deep and we call each other, our hearts are so happy, right? That's not the picture here at all. I am adrift at sea and all of the waves are crushing me. They've overwhelmed me. It says though you're at the bottom of this waterfall and you're tumbling and you can't get out. And you long to breathe. You can't find the surface. I mean, it's the best picture ever of being overwhelmed, isn't it? Because it's literally what it is. The water overwhelms him. By day, the... Now, all of a sudden here, look at this. All of a sudden we have a verse almost out of place. Right? And all of this, I'm overwhelmed and my enemies are taunting me. And by day, the Lord commands a steadfast love and at night His song is is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. Frankly, I think this is out of place. I think what happens here in the middle... So, if you put Psalm 42 and 43 together, you have 16 verses. Here, in verse 8, in the middle, he's pausing to say, here is the truth that helps me when I'm overwhelmed. God commands His covenant love. See, one of the things we forget when we're suffering is that God really does love us. That God really has committed Himself to us. That's what He's talking about here. God has committed Himself to His people. The Old Testament word is covenant love or steadfast love. God has committed Himself to you in your dark night. Don't forget that. And He pauses to remind Himself of that. And by day, it's that God commands His love and by night His song is with me. That's That's what I hope. That's what I hope with the music that we sing at New Life Church. We don't sing everybody's favorite. We don't, we don't pick it because somebody likes it. Our hope is that some refrain, some little snippet of a song that we're singing about, I will arise and go to Jesus, that you're, you're awake in the middle of the night, that that song is with you. And it forms your prayer to the God of your life. And just as soon as he reminds himself of that, he's back in the the swirling whirlpool, right? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? The mourning here is literally, why do I go about in darkness? The darkness of your soul is a real thing. 
And what do you do when that happens? When you feel like God has forgotten you? You feel like there's a deadly wound in your, deep down in your bones and there, people are taunting you or, or even your own imagination is taunting you saying, where is your God? Look how quickly he forgot, right? That God commands his steadfast love by day and his song is with me by He's probably forgotten that. And he's not very different from me because I forget it when I need it the most too. So we have a refrain. Let's call into question those doubts. Let's call into question even those questions. Where is your God? When will He come? Why are you cast down on my soul? Don't you remember God commands His steadfast love? Why are you in turmoil within me just because your circumstances are hard right now? The second part of the refrain, I want you to notice, He commands His own heart. He does not let His feelings take over. He commands His heart. Hope in God. Period. Not hope in God because things will get better. Not hope in God because someday I'll be happy. Not hope in God if... But just period. Hope in God. second thing He does is He reminds Himself this suffering is temporary. This suffering is temporary. I will again praise Him. I'm not going to be stuck at Mount Mizar all my life. I'm not going to have enemies making fun of me all my life. And even if I do, it's still temporary. It's not the eternal truth that anchors my soul. It's temporary. And then he reminds himself of his relationship to God. My salvation in my God. I hope even as you read this, you're getting some of the picture that a relationship with God is not about doing better and trying harder. It's not about trying to save yourself or think positive thoughts or trying getting your act together. That is not what God is about here. God is about being God to you. He is about saving you. Which means, a relationship with God is all about you needing saving. And if you're not willing to say, you know what, God? I'm the one who needs saving. (laughs) You're not going to have the hope of this psalm. Because God, for the person... For the person who's going to be able to talk to himself like this, God must be a salvation. God must be her God. My salvation and my God. Well, then we get to Psalm 43 and we get the third round. And it sounds different. Notice how it sounds different. Vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause against the ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy, 
And I will praise You with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are You downcast, O my soul? Why are You in turmoil within Me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. You see how this works as a metronome or a drumbeat for Him. I'm going to come back to what is important here all the time. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Now the difference here is that all of a sudden, he, he takes this inward look where he's overwhelmed by the, the, the flood and the criticism and the despair and the memories and the sadness and he turns it into prayer. And he says, vindicate me, O God. Defend my cause. Deliver me. Which, by the way, is even a better strategy than talking to yourself. You can talk to yourself, and I advocate that you do that, but I want you to talk to yourself so that you get yourself to a place where you can talk to God. And that's what he does here in his third stanza. Vindicate me, defend me, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Again, it is the person of God and his relationship to God that gives him the justification to command his soul to hope. To hope when he feels awful. How awful? See, I, I don't know how you did. I don't know how you did because you were all silent. You are supposed to be silent. When Eric said, I want you to answer the question, why are you downcast? Talk to God about that. What came to your mind? Was it blank? Was there, was there, were there words there that expressed the deep, heartfelt longing? Did you ask the question, why have you rejected me? Did you say, why do I go about mourning? Or why do I go about in darkness because of the oppression of the enemy? See, that's, that's, I mean, he's talking about maybe even worse than you were praying about a few moments ago. If you're going about in darkness, what's the solution? Simple. It's light. It's truth. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. It's a prayer to God for light into my darkness. A prayer to God for leadership in my despair and in my lostness. That's exactly what He's asking for. That's the ticket out. More than that, it's not just lead me to the right job or lead me to the right house or help me find this new car. It's lead me back to You. My soul's downcast and I feel like You've rejected me. I feel like You've forsaken me. Bring me back to where You will meet me again. You hear hear the panting, don't you? Of that deer in the first verse. God, I still am thirsty. My soul still is not where it ought to be. I still know 
I still know this to be better than I experience it. Then I'll go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy, I will praise You with the lyre, O God, my God. This makes me smile because I mean, I, the mission of our church is to help people delight in God through Jesus. And we, we chose the word delight very deliberately because we know. We know that the... That just like the deer pants for something that will satisfy, the only thing that will satisfy is God Himself. God, my exceeding joy. And it's easy in the normal times, it's easy in the hard times for, frankly, for the mission of our church to sound dumb. Why bother talking about delight when I can barely get through the day? Because ultimately, it's the pursuit of that delight that keeps your soul upright. It's the pursuit of that delight that ultimately leads you out of the darkness into the light. It's ultimately the pursuit of your joy that enables you to keep going. See, the difference here... Well, maybe I'll just go to the next verse. The difference here is not that only Christians get cast down. Everybody gets cast down. Everybody has these things. No matter how positive they may be, everybody has this. The difference is that only Christians have reason to hope in God. Only those who are in pursuit of the living water that satisfies. Only those who are in pursuit really have the hope to get through those hard times. And so this third time, we hit the refrain. I hope that by now it sounds uh, and replays in your mind. And I hope it will all week. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. I started off by... um, Started off by talking about baseball, right? And about the the mental game of baseball, and hoping that uh, you know I could help you think about uh, your life in a way that can visit help people think about baseball. But surely, surely it's better than that. Is that all there is? Is it just trying harder to think better? Is it just shouting louder at yourself? What, what is it then that is better about the mental game of being a Christian than the mental game of baseball? What is it that enables us as believers not just to have this be wishful thinking? See, that's, that's a temptation. For, you know, I just really don't want to be up here saying, 
you know, just be a little more positive. Just sort of snap your fingers, it'll get better. I want to give you something substantive that says that you have good reason to hope in God. That you have a better hope than simply thinking more positively. And where does that hope come from? Where would that hope in God come from? Oh, you know, he, he talked about it. God's covenant love. He's going to, His steadfast love, He commands it. He talked about it. He told us that God is His refuge. But what are you... How do you know those aren't simply empty words? That even the psalmist isn't just saying, think more positively. Well, I believe these are not empty words because we see those same words come up again later in the Bible. We see these words on the lips of Jesus as He is on His way to the cross. When He's on His way to the cross to secure for you God's new covenant love. When He's on the way to the cross to secure for you God's commitment to forgive your sins, to bring you to Himself, to to reconcile you to Him, to heal your wounds, to slake the thirst of your soul. As Jesus is on His way to Calvary to secure that for you, He uh, quotes from Psalm 42 and 43. Well, 42 really, verse 6. He took in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, He took Peter and James and John and He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And He said to them, my soul is downcast. Okay, it's translated in the New Testament in a different way. My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain and watch. And as Jesus admitted with the prayer of Psalm 42 and 43, that He in fact felt the way that some of you feel. That He, in fact, felt the way that some of you will feel. Abandoned by God. He said, God, not My will, but Yours be done. And He walked to the cross. And He took the sins of the world, Yours, Mine, everyone who believes, so that God might be our God. So that we might be able to pray, I thirst for you. And he might be able to say, anyone who drinks will never be thirsty again. You see, the beauty, 
The beauty of what Jesus has done, not just on the cross, but in the empty tomb and the resurrection, is to secure for us the certainty that God is not kidding. God is not just thinking about this in a better way. This is not just God saying, come on you guys, be a little more positive. This is God saying, at the cost of My Son, I will rescue you. Because I love you. I'm giving you My Son. And I'm going to make sure that the things that overwhelm you and the the sin that oppresses you, that it will not win because I will raise Him from the dead. That is the covenant love. The steadfast love of God that He commands is the love demonstrated on the cross in the empty tomb. So when I say, you better, talk to your, you better talk to your soul. And you better tell yourself to hope in God. There is resurrection reasons to hope in God. That's what we have that nobody else in the world has. Is a God who will save us at the cost of His Son. And so this morning, it's our privilege to believe that and to remember it by taking communion See, Jesus, Jesus said this very thing on His last night with His disciples when He said, this is My body broken for you. This, it, this cup is the new covenant. The expression of My covenant love. Drink it to remember Me. He commanded His steadfast love so that even when we're downcast, we can remind ourselves, like we're going to do in a moment, that Jesus has won for us victory. So there are two tables in the front and two in the back. And if you're a believer in Jesus, I want to invite you to get out of your seat during the next song and maybe come down the middle and return on the outsides and... uh, Take the bread and the, the, the juice and we will um, celebrate together in just a moment. But we'll do really just what this psalm says and we'll talk to ourselves and we'll remind ourselves that, uh, that God is our God. That He is our salvation. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we are... We're really overwhelmed. In some respect or another, we need You. And so we come. And we just don't even have words sometimes for what we need to pray. But God, we ask that You would help us to remind ourselves. Would You give us a refrain that we can tell ourselves over and over so that when we're down, when our hearts are broken, that we can put our hope in You. God, would You remind us now of of the work of Jesus and Your work through Him so that we might rejoice and we might find You to be our exceeding joy and might find You to be the living water that satisfies our soul. And so God, we we just ask for a moment of communion with You. 
we pray with the psalmist to bring us back to the place where we met with You, where we knew You. God, would You do that for us as we commune with You in this time of communion. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.